Good morning. As we turn to give our attention to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with joy-filled reverence and sober humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin prepares our hearts and minds to do that. Let's read it together. This is the one whom I look upon with favor, declares the Lord, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. This morning's scripture reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 28. Again, the text is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all excuse me, so that God may be all in all. Thanks so much, Jim. <clears throat> this morning as we go into really what is the last sermon in a series that we've been on for the last I think, seven or eight weeks, uh, redeeming the routine, what we've sought to do with each, uh, each Sunday is to re-examine, to look afresh at our daily routine. Some, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I get up in the morning and I'm just very automatic. I just sort of roll through it and I don't think about what I'm doing. And actually, I really, you really miss out. Uh, so often, the routine, the little things in life can actually be very beautiful, very meaningful things. And we've seen that from Scripture. And this morning, I want to talk about the idea of simply resting, of, fall, of going to sleep at night. And before I do that, before we actually jump into the actual content for this morning, I, I want to just give all of you a, a general uh, exhortation. Um, I was reading a book uh, not too long ago in which a, uh, a man was sharing the tragic story of his daughter who was struggling with um, an eating disorder. Uh, so much so that it, uh, it very, uh, came, came very closely to taking her life. And he describes the, just the agony of being a parent, watching a child who refuses the nourishment, who, refer, who refuses to have the strength, the health, that's really right in front of her, that she could partake of. That there are resources right at her disposal from which she refused to take and therefore deprived herself of nourishment, of health, of strength. And there is no way, the attempt, the, 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 what I'm not in any way trying to do is to critique that, but rather to say that that is so often a picture of who we are as Christians that our Heavenly Father has placed before us a feast, an, an enormous feast, a feast that can satisfy us, bring nourishment and life, 
and strength. And yet so often we refuse to eat. I'm going to ask you this morning, do you see yourself as someone who has strength and nourishment and life and health? Let me use another example. When I was doing my PhD work in, uh, in Cambridge, I was... Um, I would often, you get around Cambridge, it's a cycling town, all the, because the, the, the road is, the, the city is so old, all the various streets, et cetera, are very small, and it's just easiest and fastest to get around on, on, on a bicycle. And I was, uh, I was going through the city, I was late for an appointment, or I was heading to an appointment, I was rushing there, and suddenly there was just that downpour, this deluge of rain, and I realized I, I, realized I had forgotten my rain gear. And I was like, oh, I'm going to show up to this thing just soaking wet and sure enough I did I was also I, I walked in I was drenched and then I opened my bag and I looked and guess what was inside my rain gear right? listen Jesus Christ through our union with him provides us with everything we need to go through any experience any encounter all manner of suffering all manner of loss all manner of hardship, his salvation, what he supplies us, is more than sufficient to encounter the myriad of forces within us and around us that are so much bigger. And I long for that for Good Shepherd, I do. I long for all of you to, to taste the feast that is in before you and to know the resources that are at your disposal so that no matter what you're going through, you are equipped because, again, the Christian life is a life of, rich, of richness, of health. It really is. Of joy. The, to me, that's the thing that, that is most attractive to Christianity, is the way that it is able to take what is evil and turn it into good. To take what is, bless, to take what is a curse and turn it into a blessing. To take suffering in a way that actually leads to joy. So I just, I just mentioned that. I just, that's what I long for. That's what I pray for. And I think during, during this time of, of pandemic, of political upheaval, civil unrest, all that we're going through, that now is especially a time, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that now is a time when God is truly at work in us and around us. And the question is, are we, are we, are we seeing his fingerprints? Are, we, are our ears and our eyes attuned to his purposes and to his will? So with that in mind, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 15 this morning. As, as Jen just read for us, this is a classic passage of the Apostle Paul. And I want to speak of this idea of sleeping, of resting, because the early Christians, wonderfully, it's such a beautiful thing, the early Christians, as we'll see here, they actually used the, the, the metaphor of sleeping as a way of speaking about dying, as about death, and we'll talk about that. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, it can be a, a real struggle to fall asleep at night. I need sleep. I know I do. I go to bed exhausted, and so I need it, but I just, I just lie there sometimes. My body, my body is going to bed, but my mind is just getting up. And you ever experienced that? Suddenly, you're, and I can feel my body just gets actually starting to warm up. I can feel my mind start racing, and often all kinds of matters Matters that are personal. Oh, I need, to, I need to get in gear. I need to get that done. I need to get this. I need to do that. Matters pastoral. Oh, I need to get them help. Oh, that person's hurting. 
in matters political, especially in this, this election season, right? I think about all the injustice, all the corruption, all the greed, all the sexism, all the racism, etc. I think about all the forces that just dwarf me, and I think about other people, and I say, why don't they get it? Because, you know, I'm the only one who gets it, right? And I sit there, my mind is just racing, my mind is, is circling, you're going to go round and round and round, and I, my mind is kind of like, you know, thinking about a computer or a tablet or sometimes our phones when they get stuck and they're just sitting there and, and the, 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 um, you know, the hourglass is turning or whatever it is and, and we're just sort of frozen. And I just sort of brood. And my, again, my, my pulse, my heart rate goes up. And I feel hot and sweaty. And I sit there thinking, this is so stupid. And it's sort of this vicious cycle. I'm thinking, I gotta get this done. I gotta get them help. Why don't they get it? And then I think, this is so dumb. I just don't get this. I just don't get it. Why can't I go to bed? I don't know if you're ever like that or not. You go to bed and you, you awake, you, you, you sit there awake thinking, I need to get this done, I need to get them help, I need to get, I need to get started on this. I just don't get any of this. And listen, as I want you to hear this morning, that scripture frees us. It frees us ever so practically to get some rest. This morning, Scripture says that this. Listen, Scripture says, he's got this. Now get some rest. He's got this. Now get some rest. That's what I want you to do. Tonight, when you go to bed, just stop. So you know what? He's got this. And I'm going to bed. Okay, we'll talk about more what that looks like. So when I go to bed at night, everything seems, this is important, everything seems like it's going downhill. <laughs> everything seems like it's in decay. It seems like everything around me is dying. Look at my own life, my own body, I'm getting older. And you're just kind of, ah, it's so depressing. Right? They go around you, the relationships, you're trying to preserve relationships, you're trying to have a ministry, your job, you're trying to do all these things, and it just seems so impossible. It seems so discouraging. And the scriptures and the early Christians, listen to this, they actually spoke of falling asleep as a metaphor for death. This idea that actually we're, as we fall asleep, as we, and as we look around the world, we realize that, man, things are so discouraging. Things are just seem to be decaying, and it sure feels that way, doesn't it? And we're going to see this actually in our text this morning. And what's so beautiful is that, is that in this text we find a description of, the, of all of the forces of evil. And Jesus as one who is greater than those forces. The forces that we see in our work and our culture today that are just so corrosive, so, so wicked. And we see Jesus as the one who is Lord over those. So we see, again, we see the Christians using the language of sleep as a metaphor for death. Look in verse 20 of chapter, of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul starts this. So he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, he's not speaking actually there of, of, literal, of literal biological sleeping. He's speaking there of, of death. He's saying that there are those, those, that is Christians, who have fallen asleep. They have died. And he speaks of Jesus as the one who has been raised from the dead, who is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, okay? 
So in a number, we see this in a number of places in the, in the New Testament, and also in the early Christian literature. You can look at the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, and they use the same metaphor in really beautiful and creative ways. And it's, it's a deeply encouraging metaphor. It shows us how the early Christians thought about death. Think about it. How many of you like to sleep? <laughs> Right, I just love sleeping. I just like you get a nap in the afternoon. I mean, I'd have a morning nap, an afternoon nap, an evening nap if I could. I love to sleep. And what if? And Paul actually points out this idea. But what if dying is a lot like going to sleep? Huh? See, for the early Christians, dying was as inviting as sleeping. Because why? Because Jesus had conquered death. When it came to the evil forces within us and around us, and even the final most, you might say, most uh, insidious enemy itself, death, they said, you know what? He's got this. He's got this. So let's get some rest. In fact, there's even a saying, it's kind of fallen out of use, but it's an older English saying. Have you heard this phrase? To sleep like a Christian. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, but to sleep like a Christian means to just simply just be out like a log. And the idea was that the Christian had the freedom, the peace, the knowledge, the awareness that Christ was reigning on his throne and that he has got this. So they were out like a light, to sleep like a Christian. That's what I want for us this morning, to learn to sleep like a Christian. In fact, Psalm 127 speaks very powerful. I love, I love Psalm 127. I mean, you're familiar with it. But it speaks of how this, this beautiful way in which you and I, as, as, as Christians, can be so ongoing in our labors to, 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 um, you know, to be up all night or to get up early, to, to be uh, endlessly controlling and manipulating and seeking to do anything. Listen to Psalm 127. It says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early, and in vain you stay up late, toiling for food to eat. Listen to this. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Isn't that beautiful? He grants sleep to those he loves, to those whom he shows himself, those to whom he shows his reign, his rule over all. He grants us peace and rest. And this morning I'm going to look at, look at four things um, about the resurrected Jesus that bring peace and rest and enable us to get a good night's sleep. The first is that the risen Jesus is a commercial for Christians. The risen Jesus is a commercial for Christians. That is to say, Jesus himself, as a, in his resurrection glory, is an adver- advertisement, a commercial for what will happen to us. Okay, look in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, no, we're, not, we're not an agrarian culture. We're not a culture that understands this idea of first fruits, but first fruits were simply the very first part of the harvest. There were, the, there were this, this, this indication that there was more to come. This is, look at this is the very first fruit, the very first um, grain that comes from the harvest that we're about to have. And it's a, it's, a, it's a way of speaking of anticipation. It's the very beginning of something that's much more. And, and Paul is saying, look, Jesus' resurrection, it's an indication 
of what will happen to every single last one of us. It's assured, it's a done deal, it's final, it's decisive. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we will too. And well, why, why is there? What, what's, what's the deal? What's the logic? Why is it that Jesus is a commercial for Christians? And the answer is found in verse 21 and 22. And it leads to the second point. First, the risen Jesus is a commercial for Christians. And why is that? It's because he's the captain of his team. He's the captain of his team. Look in verse 21 and 22. We find this important logic where, see, that Jesus was not some private personal teacher. You know, like a, a, a life coach or, a, a, you know, you go to the gym and you have a trainer. That's a sort of private matter. Jesus was a public person who acted as a representative. He was the captain of his team. And when as the captain, or as you might say, the, the, the one who is in charge, he, as, as, when he does something, guess what? The rest of the team benefits. When he scores a goal, when he makes a basket, the whole team benefits. And we see that in verse 21 and 22. We see that in human history, there are these two teams, if you will, and, and, and there, there's a, there are key agents or captains of each team. Verse 21 says, For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Verse 22. For as, as in Adam, he now in verse 21, he just refers to a man in a way that's um, uh, just sort of uh, impersonally or indefinitely. We don't know who that is. In verse 22, he names those two persons. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And this may be something that's actually quite um, foreign to us as 21st century Westerners. We are a hyper-individualistic culture. We love to think that we live our lives in a way that is really isolated and insulated from everyone else. When the truth of the matter, what betrays that is the fact that we are a culture that often speaks of victimization, both real victimization and imagined in fact, this past, this past Thursday, I was lecturing on Genesis uh, 2, 3, and 4 to a whole room of uh, counseling students. And you don't need to convince counseling students that who we are is deeply influenced by our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents and on before, that there's actually a tremendous solidarity between whom I am and all those who have preceded me. And we often think that our individual choices are actually just, oh, that's just my decision. For example, if you were to ask, if I were to bring in almost any three-year-old girl in the Western Hemisphere, this right here, and I were to ask them what their favorite color is, can you guess what it would be? Pink. pink. It would be pink. It would almost always be pink. And they would say, oh, my favorite color is pink. And why is their favorite color pink? overwhelmingly because of the influence of their culture, the influence of their heritage. Biologically, there's no reason for choosing pink. It's the influence of those. And they think it's their individual choice. But actually, in truth, so much of what we do is simply the, the, actually a result of generational forces at play. And, and as he's speaking here, more specifically, he's saying, look, in, in Adam's action, in the, in the action of our first parents, decisions were made that had a, a, a cross-generational cosmic impact. Those of you, uh, if you one of my favorite uh, singers is John Mayer. 
He recently had a song that came out, uh, I think, a couple years ago, at least track of time. But it's called In the Blood. It's a phenomenal song. And, and, he's, and he basically, it's this sort of exploration of whether or not he can escape the influence of his parents. And he asks these questions of like, how much like my mother am I destined to become? How much like my father am I destined to become? This is sort of this notion of, as he gets older, he's realizing that so much of who he is. Yeah, at first, you know, especially as kids, we think we're so different from our parents. I'll never be like my old man, or I'll never be like this. And more and more we live our lives, and we realize that so much of the things that we, that we heard our parents say to us, we are saying to our children, whether we like it or not. And sometimes Sarah and I will joke, we think, man, you know, we think that why are our kids picking up all the wrong parts of us, right? Why do they remember that? I hear my kids saying something to one another, and I think, oh, that's exactly, they got that sharp word from me. And so scripture speaks of this unity, this sense in which there is a solidarity of action. That we, are, that we are heirs, that in a sense that in Adam we are all on the wrong team. When the, the, the significance of that for discussions of race today are huge, just huge. Scripture knows very well the idea of collective guilt, of corporate guilt. It does. It speaks, of, it speaks of how we are all in this together. But you know what? This, this doctrine that speaks of how in Adam we all die, that we are all guilty, is the single most unifying doctrine. It speaks of how whoever we are, black or white, rich or poor, whatever our background may be, that we are all in Adam, that we are all on the wrong team. And it unites us, it unifies us in a very important way. In a, in a world today as Christians or as, as, a, as Americans, when we are so fractured, so divided, this beautiful, this beautiful word here speaks that actually when you go to bed at night, we're all in Adam. Apart from Christ, we are all in Adam. And it is those who are in Christ, who are united to Christ, those who have bowed their knee, who have received his Holy Spirit, and who have surrendered to the reign of God and received forgiveness, who actually are now united to Christ and share in his destiny. They, they participate and they are transferred to his team, and whatever Christ has done, they share in. It's like in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Then in verse 23, he makes his point again. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, Christ, the commercial, and then when he comes, those who belong to him, that is, the, the, those who belong to him will themselves be raised from the dead. So again, so Christ, the risen Christ, he's first a commercial for his Christians. And we can have rest and peace in that. We can know what is going to happen to us. Even as we, as we go to bed at night and we think of all the aches and pains that we have, all the ways that our bodies are deteriorating, we can think of the resurrected reigning Christ whose body is glorious, perfect, without flaw, exactly as God intended to be, and we can say, that is what my body will be someday. Jesus is first a commercial for Christians. Second, he's the captain of his team. And third, he's the conqueror of all powers of injustice. He's the conqueror of all powers of injustice. Look at verse 24. It says, then the end will come, so after the resurrection, then the end will come when he, that is Jesus, hands over the kingdom of God the Father, 
the kingdom, I'm sorry, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And he's speaking here of rebellious, corrupt, unjust dominions, authorities, and powers. And this is so important because in our day and age, especially during this election season, we can truly be persuaded that you know who's going to overcome all dominion, power, and uh, all, all, all dominion, authority, and power? Politicians. We actually think, listen, this is so prevalent as, 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 as children of a liberal democracy, we actually think that, that politics are going to be the solution to all that ails us. And the early Christians, I'm sorry, the early Christians would have laughed at us. They would have hugged us, they would have whatever, they would have laughed. And said, are you really going to put your hope in Caesar? Are you really going to put your hope in Herod, in Pilate? <laughs> are, you real, are you really going to do that? So the truth of the matter, and you may, and listen, you may not like this, but listen, the truth of the matter is that I would prefer to have Joe Biden or Donald Trump as president than Nero or Caligula or almost any of those Roman emperors. What we enjoy, the freedoms that we enjoy in America, I'm not, listen, I understand that politics are important. I do. I'm not dismissing. I'm not saying they're irrelevant. I'm just saying that Listen, political policy has its place and it's important. But its role in healing our world and overcoming the forces of darkness, of injustice, is tertiary. And it should not divide Christians. It just shouldn't. We should have meaningful discussions, meaningful talks, live, uh, animated discussions about these matters. But we should go to bed at night and say, you know what? Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who will, who will destroy every rebellious dominion, authority, and power. All structure, all manners of structural evil and injustice, they will be destroyed by him. And we've seen him do it again and again throughout the centuries. The civil rights movement was first and foremost a movement of the Holy Spirit. It was a movement led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. It was led by an Afro-American church that discovered the freedom, the dignity, the beauty, the wonder of Jesus Christ. And then after that came political policies and procedures that were then put in place in various decisions of the Supreme Court. And I can, you can read about that and David Chappell's got a wonderful book called the, A Stone of Hope. And so who is the one who will defeat all manner of structural evil and injustice? It is Jesus and Jesus alone. So I go to bed at night. I'm sort of thinking about politics. Oh, those dumb Republicans. Oh, those dumb Democrats. When will those liberals get it? When will those conservatives get it? Those alt-right people. Those Antifa folks. And you sit there and it's just all over, all over your head, your mind. And you think, oh, stop. Jesus has got this. He's got this. Jesus... Jesus, you know, Jesus was, was, was greater than Nero. He's greater than Antifa. He's greater than whatever, you name, whatever oppositional force you think is the problem. So let's, 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 let's so, so first, Jesus, we, we, we find peace because one, Jesus is a commercial for Christians. Second, he's the captain of his team. Third, he's the conqueror of all powers of injustice. And finally and supremely, Jesus is the catalyst of God's future kingdoms. The catalyst of God's future kingdom. Look at verse 27. It says this, For he has put everything under his feet, that is he, that is God the Father, has put everything at or under Jesus' feet. 
And then Paul clarifies this. Now, now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God the Father himself, who put everything under Christ. In verse 28, Paul states these beautiful words. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. He's seen there will come a day when, when every single knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth has bowed its knee to the person of Jesus Christ. In every manner of injustice, every evil, every act of oppression, all of it has been subdued, and Jesus Christ will reign uncontested, and he will take that reign and he will give it back to his Father, the one who's the creator, the one who's the source of all wisdom, the one who's the source of all welcome, the one who's the source of all wonder, he will give it back to him, and, and God will be all in all. Let me close with this. Again, this, this, I, just, I, just, I want to encourage you at night. Again, I don't know if you struggle with it. Maybe just I do, but if you struggle to go to sleep at night, I want to encourage you to do two things. First, I want to encourage you to, get, to give Jesus your burdens. You lay there in bed and you simply name those things. God, I'm worried about my kids. They just don't seem to listen. I feel like I'm losing them. I feel like alienated from them. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about my kids. God, I'm worried about work. I'm worried about work and I, I don't know if I'm going to have a job next month or two. I, this whole pandemic, everything, I don't know. I mean, just the, the situation at work is just complex. It's scary. It's overwhelming. Whatever it may be. God, I'm worried about politics. I'm worried about the election. I'm worried about the, 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 this particular cause. I, I'm, I long to see um, the unborn have a voice. I just long for that. It breaks my heart. I, God, I, I just so long for the unborn to be protected. I give that to you. I give my kids to you. I give my job to you. I give the various, various causes to you. I'm worried about your church, Father. I give the church to you. Give him your burdens. You say it even say it out loud. Say, God, I do this. And then you simply, you give him your burdens, and then you get his blessing. You get his blessing. You say this. You say, God, would you help me get a phenomenal night's rest? I'm asking you to help me get a deep, to go into deep sleep and to rise in the morning refreshed. And you recount, you recall, okay, Jesus has got this. The risen Jesus is a commercial. It's a commercial for us Christians. He's the captain of, the, of my team. He's the conqueror of all the powers of injustice. And he's the catalyst for God's future unending kingdom. Well, let me close with this. As we go to the Lord's table, let me close with this. Most of you know there's a story in Mark's gospel that speaks of a, a young girl who, is, who, who, um, who dies. And her whole family and the relatives are all in the house. And, uh, and, Jesus is, and Jesus is asked to come and see if he can do anything. And when Jesus arrives, there's, there's the mourning going. There's all manner of, uh, in that culture, there was very public and, and, and loud and uh, uh, expressive lamentation as they were grieving this young girl's death. And then Jesus has the gall to say, she is not dead, but asleep. And Mark, Mark notes, this is, they said they laughed 
at Jesus. They ridiculed him. And of course, we know the rest of the story. That Jesus goes in to Talithakum, which means like, my little sheep arise. Isn't that beautiful? My little sheep arise. Jesus is Lord over death. And when you die, when we die, he's like, oh, Bruce just fell asleep. Let's go wake him up. And that's exactly how it will roll. When you fall asleep, when you die, you will fall asleep and you will wake. You will be awakened by the one who is the resurrection and the life. Hey, time to get up. It's me, Jesus. Time to get up. Wake up. Won't that be amazing? Won't that be astonishing? The one who reigns over all, the one who reigns over the forces of death, the one who reigns over the forces of injustice, the one to whom every knee will bow, will wake us up and give us a big hug. What a word of hope as we go into this table. This table is the Lord's table. It is not my table. It is not your table. It is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we approach it, let's begin. Let's do so with prayer. Heavenly Father,